Welcome to How We Scaled It for Design Teams, a show that explores the journey through the arduous road of growing a successful design practice. I'm your host, Adam Perlis, founder and CEO of Academy, the UX staffing and recruiting agency. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Reardon, the former head of product design for Responsible AI at Meta. In today's interview, Christopher will discuss how AI is changing the role of UX designers, skills that will be most important for UX designers to have in the future, and how UX designers can ensure that they're using AI in an ethical way. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Adam. It's great to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversations, and I'm glad to be on the show and uh, talking to you today. Same here, Chris. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so uh, just to kind of frame things up for people, I wanted to, you know, tell people a little bit about, you know, some of the conversations that we've been having. You know, I think what's really interesting is a lot of teams and individuals are starting to think about both how to utilize AI in their day-to-day work, um, but also in some cases having to build tools for AI. And one of the biggest challenges in doing so is doing it in a responsible an ethical manner, and you are actually an expert in this subject, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you today. And um, if you could just give the audience a little bit of context about your background, and also share with us a bit about some of the things you're working on today. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I grew up in England. Um, I am the son of an American Air Force man who lived in England at the time and we got um, moved all over the country, all over the world. And I got exposed to a lot of different cultures at a very early age. And I think, you know, understanding how people live in different parts of the world has really kind of helped me have empathy for for people and users. Um, I studied graphic design in England um, at Kingston University, uh, did print and packaging design for many years, and then Around 2000, I got into web design and building applications. Um, I moved um, to the to New York City area in 2006. I was in Los Angeles prior to that and worked um, in, in different agencies at different companies. One of the sort of bigger things that I worked on at the time was redesigning AOL. I helped redesign it from a subscription business to an ad revenue business. Um, and supported 250 million users. So that was a really interesting uh, design system project. Um, later, I got into um, working on brands uh, like Apple and IBM and Target, at, um, TBWA and Ogilvy. At Ogilvy, um, I was an executive creative director and helped launch IBM Watson in 2013. And that's when I really got the bug for AI. So I've been working on AI since then, so roughly 10 years. And um, it's just a, been a fascinating journey. Um, you know, branding it, building um, the external image of, of, you know, things like Watson, but then also getting on the inside. So in 2016, I really wanted to understand the technology and then I moved to a company called Amelia, uh, working on natural language and natural language models, much like ChatGPT today. Um, I built a virtual um, natural language agent at the time and learned a lot really about how um, voice interfaces and text inf- interfaces were going to change the future. Um, I realized that they could be very problematic at that time. And that's when I moved to Meta to work on responsible AI. So that kind of brings us up to date. 
um, currently I'm consulting. I'm doing a lot of speaking and podcasts and interviews and things like that. I've started to do some writing um, and just thinking about it's been great to see AI explode in the public eye. Um, and now lots of interest around how do you build these um, systems and the tools to build these systems as well. So it's been a fascinating ride. That's amazing. Wow. What a fantastic background. And just so cool to hear about your journey um, from all these different companies all the way leading up to Meta, um, you know, where, you know, really it sounds like you started to do, you know, some of the most important work of your your career. Um, tell me, you know, you have this very interesting title there. Um, you know, it was the head of product design for responsible AI. And, you know, it sounds like it was a really important mission, but, you know, what should this audience know about what responsible AI means? It, it's a great question and it's kind of multi-layered. So I'll first answer what, what is responsible AI in terms of product design and, and my role. And then I'll go into some of the facets of that um, for larger companies and companies that want to you know, start to incorporate AI into their products and services. So Meta... Um, responsible AI or RAI, as we used to call it, um, is basically built up of different dimensions. There's AI transparency, there's uh, AI fairness, privacy, robustness, and governance and accountability. And so each of those are different facets of resp being responsible. And they play different roles at different times. So um, AI is not a one-size-fits-all tool it can be very customized can be used in different ways and so it's not very easy to design um, a design system or a set of guidelines or what have you that is just a rubber stamp approach to how do we use and apply AI it's very contextual very scenario based lots of different variables that you have to kind of address and so th this team uh, worked across all the products at Meta and we'd think about the use of AI in those products and whether or not it was um, you know, being built um, in a way that was protecting people in society, uh, whether it was ethical, um, you know, private, and, and so on. Did, did we give users agency over their data, things like that? So very much a horizontal team across all of the products. Um, but also had influence over the engineering and data science groups as well. So how they actually build and maintain and manage the whole life cycle of AI, uh, what kinds of tools they use, what kinds of processes they um, you know, leverage in terms of gathering data, you know, cleaning and building training data and so on. Um, so lots of process and methodology type thinking as well. So it's very little, honestly, to do with UX, UI in the sense of we're designing wireframes and mobile screens. It's more thinking about the intelligence system that's inside that app that's driving those um, decisions, those outcomes from the system. Um, the reason why a lot of companies, IBM, Google, Apple, centralize uh, these teams is because of the complexity of the work. Um, it's still evolving. People are still learning about how to manage and maintain these systems. And so you want to kind of bring that team together so that they can um, work as a tight group on figuring out the best ways to handle this. 
it's also an evolving uh, regulatory space. Um, and so having a centralized um, group, being able to understand what regulation means and compliance means, and then being able to disseminate that out from a single source. So there's ownership and accountability to that team. Um, that that kind of helps. The goal is honestly to kind of make everybody aware of responsible AI. So it's just like designing for mobile. Like people understand how to design mobile. They didn't, you know, 15 years ago. It's a journey. And hopefully the, the goal is for everybody to get to a place where they can kind of understand this themselves. <clears throat> the the team itself is cross-functional. Um, we also we, we identify and determine the problems to solve. You know, what is the most critical thing that we can fix? Um, what are foundational issues that apply to all products and, and users? Um, so we're trying to prioritize constantly, like what is going to give us the most impact? Um, how to measure that? Um, there's a lot of um, applied research that's still going on in terms of like metrics and figuring out like how do you even quantify um, some of these things? Um, the team itself has um, policy experts, ethical experts, um, integrity experts, lots of different kinds of roles involved that aren't typical in normal products. Um, and so uh, the space is still evolving there. You might even have uh, people from philosophy involved um, because as the, the systems learn and evolve, they change. And so you're trying to project where could this thing go in the future and what could potential harms be in the future? Um, how do we mitigate that now? What kind of methods can we start to invent and, and prototype um, now? Um, RAI is also a gatekeeper sometimes. When should we use AI? Is AI the right tool for the job? Um, it, can some other technical solution um, suffice? Why do we need um, a learning algorithm here or not? Um, we also look at um, different stages of the production lifecycle and, and figure out you know, what, what could we improve in data labeling and gathering processes? What could we learn in terms of um, you know, content design in terms of making transparent to users how things work um, and making it easy for them to understand? Um, the goal, too, of REI is to get out of the way of the rest of the company. We're not there to be a blocker. We're there to help make sure that there's nothing untoward happening. But we also are trying to empower teams to make decisions in real time. And so we often build frameworks and decision-making methods that help teams move at the pace of their own businesses. Um, and so it's it's more of how to, how to teach a person to fish rather than you know, getting in the way and micromanaging them. Um, part of that too is to kind of assess, is the framework holding up? Is it working across different scenarios? Um, is it giving, uh, you know, guidance that makes sense and is actionable? Yeah, and like when you started to talk about, you know, frameworks and processes and tooling, you know, obviously a lot of the designers out there that are probably listening to this I've never had to build a tool for, you know, AI before and never even had to think about ethics. I mean, we're so used to thinking about empathy and the user, which is already kind of a new, you know, framing for a lot of uh, companies, especially and sometimes individuals. Um, but what are some of the the tools that you guys use and that you try to put in the hands of the teams that are building these, 
you know, various AI tools um, so that they can more easily think about um, responsible AI and ethics when they build their, you know, their next product? That's a, it's a great question. Um, so again, it's like we, our goal is to kind of empower and advise and educate um, teams on the latest thinking around these issues. And so there's like three or four things that we use in terms of um, high level approaches. The first is, um, you know, defining your principles and values. Um, it sounds like a standards kind of design approach, but um, in this, it's a little different because it's a machine that emulates thinking and thinking like processes. And so, you know, how should that thing think? How should it make trade-offs and, and prioritize things? When you think about things like transparency and privacy, for example, you want to make sure that a user is um, adequately um, informed, right? We give them uh, information that has a material nature to it that they can make informed decisions about how much data they share. If we give too much transparency, that could inundate the user, but it could also leave the system open to adversarial attacks, right? If we give too much of the, you know, how the, how the cookie is, you know, how the sausage is made away, um, that leaves us open to security and privacy uh, concerns. And so you're always kind of balancing some kind of trade-off between you know, sharing too much information as it comes to transparency and security. So how do you how do you balance those things? And so that's not a one size fits all. It depends on the scenario, it depends on the type of data that you're using, you know, how critical that data is or not. Um, so that's that's a different approach than say versus building a style guide where it's like thou shalt always do X, Y, and Z. That doesn't really work. And so um, if you don't have an ethical team, um, a policy team and so on, smaller companies don't often have that. They're looking for outside resources and vendors and you know, reading books and so on. The best thing to do is actually sit down as a team and write what you think your principles and values are, bring in your audiences and have them help co-create those principles and values. Try and frame up those principles and values through both good scenarios and potentially negative scenarios and see how they hold up that, you know, sort of bulletproof those things. That's a good place to get to where there's at least some kind of coherence and consistency and engineering understands that design and UX understand that the business leaders understand that. So at least there's some coherence across the group. That's a good first step. And another methodology is uh, red and blue teaming. So we're stealing from engineering playbooks here where, you know, they they hire an outside um, vendor, ethical uh, hackers, if you will, to um, test their security systems to see if there are flaws so that they can then patch those systems. That's the, the old school way of doing this. Well, it, whether you're um, brainstorming a zero to one product or a feature, um, it's great to everybody focuses typically on the the benefits and the upside and the blue sky and everybody holds hands and is excited about the potential of this new fantastic um, product that you're going to bring. I, I recommend taking it to the room next door the day later and having a different team think about how that product might go go wrong or might get subverted in some way or 
how the model might change its behavior over time because it drifts from its intended use. It starts to learn new things that it wasn't necessarily built for, or somebody in the company re reuses that same model for a different um, task, and that might have um, unintended consequences. And so playing the negative role um, helps uh, people understand how this could be you know, in, impactful in, in a not so great way and, and then build mitigations around that, or at least maybe think about reprioritizing the roadmap to work on the things that feel more, um, you know, safe, you know, in quotes, um, and, and leaving those more risky things off until you've done some more due diligence around, you know, what those uh, features and capabilities might deliver. Um, with sprint planning, um, it's good to have um, experts in the room. So if you don't have them on hand, they're not on staff. Bring in outside experts like policy experts, civil and human rights experts if you're in the sort of social space, and have them be part of the, the team as you kick off a sprint. I think it's actually really powerful to anchor everyone in that room on some scenarios and some best practices and some examples of negative outcomes some watch out, things like that before the sprint kicks off. So they can be short, simple 10 minute, 15 minute presentations where it's like, here's three things that you should learn about the EU AI Act. Here's some things about the Digital Services Act and so on. Um, here, you know, thinking about the broader community that you might be designing for, it might not just be US centric, it might be EU, it might be Asia, it might be different parts of the world. Uh, thinking about those regulations and just hitting the high level stuff so that everybody's grounded in um, a sense of the gravitas of how much these things can make a difference in society. Um, that helps as well. And then lastly, um, leveraging things like service design for continuous improvement. So you can you can do that on the end product itself. But I highly recommend using service design on the actual production lifecycle itself. So how engineers build, what tools they use, what code they use, what data is uh, gathered and those methods around gathering it and so on. Each touch point in that you know, factory, if you will, of building a model um, requires different skill sets, different functions to kind of work together. But oftentimes those functions actually don't understand the ethical implications of what they're doing or the compliance, you know, legal implications of what they're doing and so on. So going down that stack of humans who are touching the, the code and the data and so on as it moves along the chain and giving them a cheat sheet of here's the things to be wary of, don't, don't do these things. But again, you're not trying to slow down innovation. You're not trying to slow down their delivery times you want to try and integrate that into their their workflow as seamlessly as you can um, so that over time the products that are coming out the other end um, are more thoughtfully uh, engineered wow that's uh it's amazing that you've kind of thought through so many parts of this process i mean um you're from the earliest stages of like just tooling and processes to kind of like uh help guide teams to like the types of roles that might be necessary. Um, one of the things, you know, that we really focus on in this podcast is helping design leaders and their team growth, 
right? Um, and as they go through that journey of scaling their operation, there are lots of things that undoubtedly will um, will change, um, and they'll have to adapt. And um, well, let's be honest, AI is pretty much the biggest game changer since uh, you know maybe the discovery of fire uh, that we've seen in a very very long time. Um, what do you think design team leads are going to need to plan for in the future? Like what type of skills will they be looking for? What type of, um, you know, tooling should they be thinking about? Um, we've talked a little bit already about process, so we won't get into that. Um, but, um, you know, what other, what other things, you know, I don't know that we're not thinking of already, uh, do we need to be thinking about um, as you know, design, the landscape of the designer really changes? Yeah, it's it's um, a fascinating um, space. It's it's kind of like when mobile started to take off, and we all started to learn about uh, responsive grids and, and and reflowing content and content design and all those kinds of new roles that start to develop. Um, I think this is way bigger than that. And nobody is doing this well, just so you know, there's no company out there that has nailed this and has like the perfect process in place. And so what is interesting with that is um, there's both a an output in terms of like what the new products look like, but then there's also, you know, you know, who is making it, how are they making it, what does that mean? And I think both of those are very fluid and ambiguous right now, which is great for designers because we can come in and kind of start to identify those things that um are, are patterns and methods and you know things that we can operationalize in a way that design only designers can do because we have empathy for people and we can pull teams together in new ways so i think it's a really um uh, you know environmentally rich space for designers and design thinking who are used to uh, you know dealing with challenging problems I think um, NLP is, you know, natural language processing is obviously going to be a huge thing. Uh, that's going to revolutionize, you know, design and product design. Um, I think natural language will be in every product within a year. It'll, it'll just happen. Meta, for example, just released a new model that can speak a thousand languages. So just think about that from a, an adoption perspective. It's unbelievable. Um, we can basically build an app now that works for anybody anywhere in the world, which is incredible. And to just jump in there for those um, like maybe unfamiliar and, and maybe, and I want to make sure I get it right too. Um, when you're talking about NLP or natural language processing, you're kind of talking about um, some some of the familiar apps that I think people have started to see or like ChatGPT utilizes that from an interface perspective and the way that it interacts with the user um, and then versus like, um, like the idea of generative AI, can you actually help define generative AI and natural language processing, um, so that people are, uh, understanding of the, of the two terms and then like examples of, of well, each? Then, yeah, natural language processing is, um, simply put me understanding what your intention is when you say something to me. Um, and then. Um, you can connect natural language processing to what we call robotic process automation, which is basically a, a kind of, if you think of it, um, natural language as the brain, robotic processing is this, the spine and the arms and the appendages, right? So that it can actually do something with that information. So it is 
um, a new kind of interface. Re- you know, it replaces buttons and drop downs and scroll bars and all those things because it understands your intention and then can connect the dots to a task, you know, an action and so on. Generative AI is a little different where it is basically remashing something that it's heard from you and generating something net new from that. So th- those two things can blur. Uh, it's hard to, you know, it's a sort of scenario based thing. Um, but it, it basically um, is used in a more creative process. So you ask ChatGPT to do your kids' homework. Um, you know, it can write a paper for you. That's generating that content. But ChatGPT can also be used as a method to understand what I'm saying and connect back to another system. So, um, in a in an application, for example, um, the the natural language processing agent will understand better the context of of my scenario right now am i in the car yes okay don't show me pictures because i can't take my eye off the road right so it will use language to describe something rather than show me an image whereas uh, so that contextual awareness will be something that we'll start to see in applications and, and mobile apps um and so i think over time natural language could um, disambiguate old school model, you know, um, UI. What, what I mean by that is, um, take, it will gradually take away more of the buttons that you see on the screen because its understanding will grow. And so it won't need to have these kind of crude, do you mean this or do you mean this? And you push the button on the screen and say, I'm in this, it'll actually just understand it. So it won't need those other things that you normally see on say you know the the typical assistants yeah i think that's one of the biggest like changes for me is like having a lot more freedom to ask the system that i'm working with to do something unique and so like before um you know if i wanted to like uh work better now find somebody on linkedin for example you know, I'd have to like go into the system, I would type their name, I'd then have to select a number of different filters, and it would be a very linear path, and it would give you a very specific, you know, list. But if I wanted to get more creative with that, and like ask it to do something special, like, um, you know, give me a list of like, um, a 1000 people uh, that are first and second degree connections that are like, um, you know, the top um, influencers based on impressions, you know, and, um, organize them into a table and like make the, make sure that, um, I have all their email addresses, you know, that would be like a, typically a, a harder like task for it to do, but I could just like write all that out and like in seconds, um, you know, it would, it would do it. Um, and so like the idea of like the traditional interface, I think is almost like completely being blown up because, of natural language processing and it's a abil- its ability to understand and, and make sense of what you're saying. And then with the generative portion, uh, the GPT side able to, to be creative with that and maybe even expand upon it if necessary. The interesting thing that is underlying what you're saying is, um, the, it- virtual agents will eventually get smart enough where you don't need to go anywhere else. 
You won't need to search the web. You won't need to search LinkedIn. You'll just be able to say, hey, I'm looking for 10 experts that need to help me in um, vision AI. And, uh, you know, it'd be great if they were, you know, warm connections that I have some, you know, friends that could introduce me or something like that. And it's you, your prompt from the one that you just described gets to this big because it's it just understands where you're going. It's inferring. And so if it's doing that in this scenario, why would I ever need to go to a website? So the issue there for Google is that's going to kill their advertising business, right? Google search is designed to be doorways into the best content uh, on those websites. And that's how they make money. Now, this is this is kind of what Bill Gates was saying the other day, where it's like, we're going after Google and we're going after Amazon. Why would I need either of those businesses uh, when my assistant on my device disambiguates all of that other infrastructure behind them? So really, this is a battle, battle between the two business models, an ad revenue model or a subscription model. And, and that's what's going to get really interesting here. So not only is it going to change what designers are designing on screen, it's going to change all of the stuff behind it that we were thinking about in terms of the, the supply chain. And like, I, I'm trying to think about this myself, but you know, we we're just continuing down that natural language processing and changing of like how interfaces are built. Like what are, what are the skills that the UX designers of the future are going to need? You know, we, we, you and I have talked offline a little bit about how a lot of the visual design work um, could eventually kind of get offloaded in some way. But as I start to think about it, this is a complete paradigm shift, right? And so, yeah, maybe some visual design work could get offloaded to a to an AI. Um, but given that this is net new territory, the AI may not even understand like how to build an interface like this because it's never learned from us humans, which helped feed it all this great information. So like when we start to think a little bit ahead to those UX designers of the future, like what are the skills they've got? You know, is it interface design? Is it something else? It's, it's, I think it'll be something else. So I think design systems, um, patterns, components, all those things will just be owned by um, the AI. Um, the reason is, is those things are all patterns. AI is amazing at pattern recognition. Uh, it's it's amazing at optimizing things. And so um, it will be able to do that at scale that no human team could ever, ever be able to manage. I, I've sat in numerous um, critiques over the last 20 years where the conversation is, how do we make sure that this thing looks like this thing looks like this thing, Right. A machine, a machine will just do that. It will, and not only that, your your assumption of what the best of those things is is most likely off anyway. And so, you know, metrics, you know, analytics, AI will just you know kill it on that. So, I think um, visual design in the in the in the sort of typical sense of um, what a lot of large companies have is a, a massive group of designers who manage a massive design system and they all understand pieces of it. Um, the AI will just orchestrate that whole thing. Um, the AI at the moment isn't good at being net new inventive. So I think they'll still be, you know, oh, we, we've discovered some new, new paradigm. 
Um, but I think where UX UI goes to is contextual awareness of a system. So, you know, like, like I mentioned, if I'm in the car, it goes into this modality. It talks about things in this way. It, um, prompts me in, in, in these kinds of conversations. So it's more of a conversational design approach. Whereas if I'm sitting on the couch and I've got my iPad in front of me, it might, it's, you know, I was designing systems six or seven years ago where we would, instead of describing things, we would show you images and say, which of these six things is the thing that you really mean? And so again, that's where generative AI might come in. It might show me you know, here's three versions of your um, couch that you could possibly buy f for your living room in situ. And now I'm like, oh, I want that one. You know, describing that in a in a voice way would just be onerous, right? It would just take too long. Whereas an image suddenly just cuts through and just gives me that clarity. So I think designers will be designing context and, and thinking through what is the appropriate thing at the right time. Um, and the AI will then execute against that. So that that's kind of where it will move. And then I think obviously um, the AI bias, AI responsibility um, piece will be huge as well, designing for much uh, niche, more niche communities and having that empathy to kind of really drill down into, you know, what is appropriate for different communities, uh, what kinds of language, what kinds of imagery. Um, it's very dicey because... You, you could say that that's inequality because you're, you're teaching and, and designing for different communities in different ways. That can go in a, in a bad way, which we could do a whole other podcast on. Um, but um, thinking through um, inequality and equities, balancing those, I think will be the, the prime um, kind of space for AI designers. Um, and the design itself will change. We, could, we can sort of talk about the different skills um, Designers will become more hybrid in nature. Uh, they might have one foot in policy and one in design. And what that designer does is workshop with regulators and civil and human rights experts to figure out like those guidelines that AI thinking machines should adhere to in different scenarios and thinking through how to plan and red team and come up with different ways that we might miss some things um that person knowing policy and knowing human empathy skills coming together and being the glue between two different kinds of factions who work on this um will will be helpful i think the same will be true of voice um designers and uh, service designers that they'll have a foot in a different uh, group and will become the glue to bring this larger group of stakeholders together to design these systems Cool. Um, so, so Chris, you talked a little bit about a voice designer. What exactly is a voice designer to? Yeah, um, really, it's a conversational designer. And when you think about how we talk to each other, how we text each other, how we email each other, those are all different ways of communicating, right? We both use English. Um, but what I might text to you might be very brief. Um, my, I have a 14 year old son. He might just respond with a letter K, right? That's what I get all the time from him. Um, whereas my 70 year old mum in a text message might write something as if it's a letter where it's like several paragraphs. 
um, you know, dear Chris at the top, love mum at the bottom in, in a text message. And so understanding the sort of norms and etiquette of different communication channels is what a conversational designer does. And so you want to train an AI to be able to manage different channels like that so that it's not delivering war and peace through a text message and then in an email something as brief as a tweet. Um, and so it has that contextual awareness um, to be able to communicate in a way that feels authentic. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, I think a lot of writers were a little bit worried about, you know, being completely out of a job. Um, it does sound like, you know, people who are strong writers, um, this be actually a very good job for them. Yeah, no, I think I think it is still um, something that's interesting. I think ChatGPT has really um, shown how these large language models can kind of bite into that role. Um, it's pretty interesting if you ask ChatGPT to um, distill large text down into a summary. It does a really good job. If you get good at you know in quotes at prompt engineering. Uh, you could have it generate um, stuff for social media, stuff for short form and long form and so on. So it can do that work, um, which is powerful stuff. But in terms of real-time conversation, um, you know, I think most companies will want to um, hire people to, to kind of design and really articulate those conversations well especially in regulated um, industries like banking and healthcare and so on where legal ease is really important around the actual language that's being used and so making sure that the the ai is on track that way yeah i i think still a lot of of work needs to be done there i mean even in my usage of chat gbt there there can oftentimes be mistakes and um you know, or misinterpreting what I said, and I had kind of got to dumb it down for the system a little bit. Um, yeah, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I know that um, this has become a really important topic, especially in the ethics part of the conversation. Um, you know, we've seen Adobe Firefly now come out. Um, they've taken a very specific stance in regards to um, training their models on, um, you know, either, uh, like, uh, own, owned work, like work that they have, um, ownership over or that they have the rights to utilize, um, for the purpose of training a model. Um, and that's kind of been a stake in the ground in some ways where other groups, I won't name any specifics. And I actually don't know if the, um, other groups do or do not do this. So I, I don't want to say they do or don't, but I know that Adobe is putting a stake in the ground about this. Um, and people have been very vocal, especially in the design community, saying like, you're stealing other people's work. Um, I think there is somewhat of an ethical discussion to be had also about, you know, hey, if I go to a museum and I'm inspired by Da Vinci and, you know, Picasso and all the great artists, and then I go and create my own, you know, version of, of their like of, of like kind of a, an amalgamation of their work, um, you know, am I violating some sort of ethical code? I feel like, you know, artists have stolen from each other for years, you know, like it's always been that way. Um, so where is like the line start to be drawn? Um, I'm curious to hear your point of view on all that and, um, you know, where things are going for the industry. 
yeah, it's a fascinating conversation. And again, this could be easily another podcast. Um, I think um, the difference, though, with artists copying artists is artists had to learn how to be artists in the first place. There's still some manual work there where, you know, as a kid, I learned how to appreciate, you know, Michelangelo and Leonardo and, you know, do figure study and kind of compare my my, you know, charcoal sketches to theirs and, and, you know, refine my own style over years. Um, that's not the same with AI today where you can literally just type in a few sentences and boom, you've got, you know, something that looks like it comes from the 14th century immediately. And, you know, that kind of cuts out the middleman. So I, I definitely think the, the copyright lawyers um, have their work cut out for them. I think it extends beyond just what we're talking about here though if if i can model um thinking processes um can i model people out of the workforce right that's a bigger question right if i can do it with art can i do it with you know accounting or um you know pick pick any any kind of vocation um and basically these things are massive automation systems um, and you know, if you, if you think that way, that's another part of responsible AI, which is just because we can, should we do that? And, you know, is society ready for mass layoffs because these systems will become so good at what they're doing that it impacts, um, you know, the ability for the, the economy to function anymore because not enough people are, are able to sustain a job. Um, I think the flip side too is that people might actually start to treat people like AI. Um, you'll expect people to just deliver um, amazing work as quickly as an AI does, and that will have impacts as well on our social and you know professional relationships with people. Um, and and we haven't studied those tensions yet, and how that might impact our like uh, collective psychology. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be a, a whole, <laughs> it could be much more than a podcast. I think we could write a book about this particular subject because it, it, it is so complex. And I think we've all started to be, you know, having those conversations with friends or colleagues, um, you know, about the positive and negative effects of AI, not just on our industry, but every industry and, well, frankly, humanity and these are definitely important conversations to be had. Um, and uh, I don't want to dive too deep into it because I think we will easily get off topic. But um, but but I, I do think it is, a, you know, a really important thing for us to think about, you know, especially in terms of um, I think the the approach Adobe is taking. I personally have um, enjoyed. I think that is that's the right approach, um, you know, trying to get a consent um, trying to think about this in an ethical and responsible manner. Um, you know, I, I think like they saw where it was going wrong. We talked about the red, red team and blue team before, and they saw that there was a lot of backlash in the community and they responded by coming up with a very, I think, responsible solution. And I think those are the type of things that design leaders and teams need to be thinking about when they start to develop this tooling um, for the future, um, whether they are creating it or utilizing it. And um, 
yeah, I, I think it's just uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where things go from here. But um, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap our conversation. Um, but before we go, I just wanted to give you any parting words with the um, you know with our audience uh, about you know the state of of AI and um, you know where things are going for designers. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some things that designers can feel um, pretty safe about. I know there's a lot of anxiety in the industry right now. I think um, design thinking and empathizing with users is going to still be squarely in the designer's role and the UX role. I think um, being imaginative and creative and thinking through new um, ways of dealing with user challenges is going to be something that we still own for quite some time. Um, it's going to be very long before an AI can um, really understand the world and really understand people's emotions and intentionality and things like that. So I think we're, we're safe in that space. I do think I would recommend to designers to you know, learn simple 101 AI terminology, you know, learn what, what it means to build a model and train a model and all the processes that go into that the different kinds of models, learn a, a smattering of regulation, right? Try and try and keep up on um, what's happening in the EU. Um, those things really help. Um, learn about ethical um, processes and methodologies. Um, Peter Singer is a great um, ethicist to kind of learn from um, practical ethics. Um, things like that are, are really helpful. So, um, you, you can start to understand how a thinking machine might have an impact um, on the world. In terms of evaluating talent, I think um, the world is going to become a lot more ambiguous and fluid. So I think people who are adaptable and resilient and open-minded, you know, thinking through like how to learn new, new stuff and just diving in and rolling up their sleeves. There are really, um, I know I'll get some backlash for this, but there are really no experts because AI isn't a static space. It's constant. I mean, every week, every day, almost there's a new white paper that's coming out. And, and frankly, not all the in quotes experts understand not just the technology, but how, you know, humans are amazing at taking tools and using them in ways that the people who invented the tools didn't think about. Right. And that's the piece that these, you know, research scientists don't understand is that we're very crafty in how we use tools. And that's the bit that they hadn't planned for. They were thinking in a lab, they were thinking it could be used for X number of use cases. And now it's exploded into numerous different spaces. And so saying you're an expert is a little bit of a fallacy. Um, it's, it's such a, an amorphous, um, you know, constantly changing space. So, um, you know, just diving in, trying to learn this stuff, figuring out MVPs, prototyping, you know, experiences, um, you know, failing fast again is like a good way to kind of get into this space. And there, there are no stupid questions. Yeah, it's very humbling to hear that, you know, there, there are no experts in AI at the moment. Um, and, and that also presents a great opportunity, I think, for a lot of the folks out there and and the recommended reading that you um you mentioned that would be great for us to include in the show notes so if you wouldn't mind sending me a a few links i will make sure that those get added i personally would love to read them um as well as i start to you know digest and learn learn the space even more 
Um, but Chris, this has been fantastic. It was so great to speak to you about this topic. And I know our audience is just going to absolutely love it. Um, just uh, one last parting thing is, um, is there anywhere people can, you know, follow along with you, you know, any of your thoughts, um, maybe content that you're producing? Sure. Yeah, I can send you the links to that as well. Um, I have a Medium um, account. Um, I also have a website where I have some of my work. Um, so I'm going to be doing a lot more writing on this subject. I've been getting a lot of uh, interest um, from various places and uh i want to put more pe- time to put you know pen to paper to, to kind of expand on this oh that's fantastic well thank you again so much for taking the time with us today and um yeah we'll uh see you soon thanks again All right thanks adam this has been a pleasure Cheers. Cheers.